do in the winter. Hello and welcome to the sixth of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Alva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I'm delighted to say that I get the chance to talk with Alistair McLean. Alistair was born in Dervig and spent his childhood around and about the village. He can trace his family and the area back to the 1700s. Alistair is well known for his work as a fisherman and his vast knowledge of local lore and tales. He's a true tradition bearer. Our conversation covers a lot of ground and we move from topic to topic fairly swiftly. Some of the things we talk about include Queenish, Treshnish and the Whiskey Cave, Salmon Netting, Otter Trapping, the process of making your own shot, the changes in dance and Cayley music, the Highland Fund, fishing boats and fishing for different catches. Towards the end of our conversation, we get into tales of characters from the past, including Marky Dan, the Bongan and several other folks. There are links and more on the website for many of the topics we talk about, including some photos. I had a few issues with the microphone whilst recording this session, so please excuse any odd wee noises and sort of the sound of hands moving around here and there. At one point in the chat, Alistair's wife, Anne, comes in with a cuppa for us both, which I've left in. You can't beat Highland hospitality. That scone was just cracking. At one point, we got into looking at some photos. I'll drop back in with a wee voiceover to give you a bit more context there. I've kept in the episode as it's just great to hear Alistair talk about the men he worked with and the boats that he knew. The photos he talks about can be found on the episode's webpage on www.whatwedointhewinter.com. I'm delighted to say that this episode has been sponsored by www.mullselfcatering.co.uk. Have a look at their site at www.mullselfcatering.co.uk for their three properties, two flats at Thornley Bank and the house beside them, Creve. They're beautiful properties in Upper Tobermory and have a really homely feel to them. They're perfect for a break with family or friends. I'll be back at the end of the podcast to say a couple more things and round off. In the meantime, over to Alistair. I'm Alistair McLean. I was born in Dervig in Cregan, that's up in the middle of the village there. And uh, my people come from the Smiddy. And how many of you uh, were there, are there, in the family as well? Well, there was um, there was five of us. There was, uh, I was the oldest. I was born in 1939, before the war. And then Tommy, he was born in 1942, I think it was. And then we had a sister, Mary Lilly. She she was born about forty four, I think it was. But she died as an infant, you know. And then there was Elizabeth, you know, she's married to Hugh McPhail, mm-hmm. and uh, Catherine Duffy, you know, and Derrick. That's that's the, the the five of that was the five of us. Aye. So you grew up in the village, but the family from the Smiddy originally. Well. My grandfather, <clears throat> as I was telling you earlier, they, they came from the, the mill. Yes. Now, he was born in 1826, Hume McLean, he was a, one, he was a twin. There was his, uh, his twin brother, Neil. And I think there was probably a dozen of them there in that family, in the mill. Wow. Now, he uh, was apprenticed, I think it was Donald McMaster, he lived in, in Drumgiga. Mm-hmm. He was a famous kind of blacksmith, you know, he was from uh, Keel and Morvan there. And uh, my, grandfa- my great-grandfather must have served his time with him because uh, my great 
I, my great-granduncle, John, was married to one of Donald's daughters. So that was how that came about. But then he came to the Smitty in Derwig about 1850. He was there in 1851. I just got married then. And uh, he had, I think it was, was it 12, I think they had as well. And how they were living in that single story house at the Smithy, I don't know. But uh, he was a blacksmith there, and then my grandfather, he was his, uh, Alexander Frandy, he, he, was, uh, he took over the Smithy, and he was there, and then my father, he took it over. And the, I think the Smithy, well, by the time I left the school, it was, you know, even before that, in the the early 1950s, it was it was just there was nothing as far as work was concerned. So I missed out on that. You know, if not, I would probably have been doing that kind of work. But that was that's where they came from, and that's where they are. But it goes they go back in the middle to uh, the very early 1700s. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, but with that that uh, Smitty house, you no, know, my great grandfather came in there in about 1850. Well, we've still got that house. Yes, Stone Valley, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a long time. It's, yeah, a very long time. Isn't, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So, your dad was working uh, in the Smiddy, but uh, times had changed and kind of people hadn't weren't buying or weren't repairing materials so well, much. Well, what happened was, see, in my grandfather's time and my great grandfather's time, I mean, it was all horses. Yes. But then, once... It came up to war time. I mean, there were still a lot of horses then, but as the, the the war went on, the Department of Agriculture started sending round tractors. Yes. You know, the old tractors were there, and they had thrashing machines and different ploughs and things like that. You know, they, they were doing a lot of work to help the the farmers. And uh, what happened was just after as the war was coming in, the, the the horses were getting less and less. Then the wee Fergie tractor came on the scene. Yeah. And before you knew it, everybody had a wee Fergie yeah. tractor and the horses were virtually disappearing, you know. Well, my folks in Collins, said about it, they, they um, mourned the loss of the horses because you could get on a, 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 a horse drunk and it would take you home, whereas oh. a tractor certainly wouldn't. I've certainly <laughs> seen quite a few of that kind of thing. There was Duncan McGilvery at... Um, that was in the Letter Moor. Oh, yeah. He used to come down there to get the horses shod, you know, yeah. and oh, I seen him towing maybe between three and five at a time. He had a trap, you know, and the horse, the old horse would walk on down. And Duncan was a very kind man, Duncan, and he always had wee bundles of a turnip and some potatoes for all his mates in Dervig, you know, and he'd go away. We'd go up with him, cart all this stuff up, and he would go round all the houses, and of course, he was getting a dram and a cup of tea, and as he generally did in these days. And then uh, he would arrive back at the smithy, you know, if it was the winter time, it was getting dark by the time he'd arrive back, so he would get another cup of tea from my mother, and we would light the candles in the lanterns that were on the side of the, the, the trap yeah. and tie all the horses on. He would climb up into the trap and had these big horse blanket things he used to put round them, Aye. you know. Yeah. And he would set off, it'd be freezing. My father used to say, by the time Duncan gets to time, he'll be sleeping and the horse will take him home. And the horse would take him right across. Yeah. 
and he would stop at the gate. That was him. Fantastic. Uh, that's the way they were. Different things altogether. Oh, very much so, yeah. But the, as far as the horseshoeing was concerned, it was a, a shame, really, you know, because it wasn't just horseshoeing. Everything was done in that smiddy. My, gra my, great, my grandfather, he served his, a bit of his time with my, my great-grandfather, but then he went to Glasgow. Okay. And he spent quite a few years there, you know, he learned it wasn't just horseshoeing that did everything, you know. So he, he was very popular, but he taught all that, a lot of that to my father as well, you know. But they could do all these kind of things. In fact, there was, down in Queenish there, there was a, a turbine there for driving the mill and different mm -hmm. things. And it, it had a huge big crown wheel, I don't know, it would be two feet or two and a half feet across and the teeth got broken on it. It was cast, you know. Oh, right cast. So, in these days, there was no welding going on or anything like that. Oh. So, my grandfather took it up to this midi and he cut, the teeth were quite long, apparently, but that way, and the, he cut a dovetail out with it into the thing, but there was about three or four teeth that had stripped out of it. And he made, now this was all done with a file and a chisel, but he made the, then he made the teeth out of iron and he heated the, the thing in the fire, the, the, the crown wheel, till it, it would swell, you know. Then he inserted these new teeth and cooled it, and they just clamped it. Now that thing was there up till, I think it was Balfour Paul's time, I think Huey destroyed quite a lot of the machinery that was in there, it was a shame. It's got so much potential, that whole square is oh. extraordinary. You should have seen it when it was in its heyday, my goodness. I'd have loved to have seen it. It's a beautiful space. Oh, a Huey Munkle worked there all his life, really, right. you know, and uh, it was quite amazing to see that place. They had a harness room there, it was in at the front, I think there was a flat above it where the, mm -hmm. the coachman used to stay. But they had every kind of harness you could imagine in there, you know, all the working harnesses, the ones for the shoes and the ones for the ploughing matches, and it was all polished. Remember my Uncle Huey, you know, before a ploughing match, he'd be down there for days polishing, <laughs> polishing all this uh, harness and the buckles and the brass stuff and... It's terrific. So how much did um, Antime and Queenish as farms feature in your life growing up as a oh, child? a lot, yes, of course, because the like of Antime and Trochlach and Ardu mm. and these places, Queenish, when we were young, eh, you'd be going, there'd be fanks, you know, yes. for clipping the sheep and all the rest of it. Now, we would be there when we were boys, crocking, as they called it, for pulling out the sheep for the guys that was clipping. Ah, right, okay. And uh, coping them onto the thing. And if you didn't, if somebody they weren't very keen on, <laughs> you would give him a sheep that had been rubbing herself in a bank somewhere and she had stones in her... C <laughs> and they'd be trying to clip, you know. Yeah, that'd be so... It was hand clipping in these mm. days, you know. But we used to go to the, the fang up the glen there, you know. Up, before you get into the forest, towards yeah, yeah. Craig there. We used to go to that one a lot. Is that where Fire Miller was? Is that where the, the old uh, fair was many years ago? Oh, no, no, no. Ah. No, that's this, uh, on the t on time end of that. Okay. After you pass Drum the Cross, yes, yeah. you go along. Before you come into the forest, see ah, below the road there. Just right? on the right-hand side, yeah. Ah, the stone buildings. Yeah, that yeah. was the Fank. So where was the, the Mall Fair then? Where, where did that It, it was up at Drum Tai. That's when you you go through the you past Achna Craig, you go through the forest, and when you come out of the forest and you start climbing up the hill, it was up near the top of that hill in the forest. It's, it's day. Ah, 
Right, I'd never been there then. Right? Uh, no, it's not very good to see nowadays, but when I remember it, there was no forest there. Yeah. And uh, there was, kinda, you could still see the sort of remains of, they had, I don't know, it was, must have been built with turf or something, whether they were using it for certain or what, I don't know, but it was a very important place that. Yeah. Of course, it was a meeting. You know, a lot of folk, if they were travelling over there, would come up through Glen Macquarie, that takes you from Lagan. Oh, right, okay. You know, instead of going all the way around Aye. by Derwig, there was a... Just through Glen Macquarie there. That, I mean, that was... Boswell and Johnston, when they went over to Ulva, that was uh, apparently the way they went. Right. Through that, that glen, you know. Of course. Well, I've, never, I've never done that walk yet. It's, uh, oh, it's, um, it's nice. It's a beautiful place. I mean, if you go up... <clears throat> on the Kanagara side there, yeah. to the top of that, that's, uh, what the hell do they call it? It's the castle anyway. Uh -huh. I can't remember what the, the Gaelic name of it was. Oh, yeah. But that, that's, see if you get up on the top there, you can see for miles in all directions. Um, we talked very briefly about uh, uh, Old Man Mackenzie, uh, Lucy's dad as well, and uh, Johnny Nan. Yeah. Uh, what was their relationship like? Oh, great. Johnny was a uh, shepherd in, in time at that time, you know, and uh, Johnny was always a bit of a famous poacher, you know, as we all were in these days. And uh, I think I told you about that at the time with the salmon. Yes. And Johnny had been down at the river and he got a couple of salmon. And these days, when you were shepherding, it would be a, a hessian sack turned over, just half a, a rope round your back, you know, holding it. And all you carried your stuff in there. Yeah. But Johnny got a couple of salmon down in the river and he just arrived back at the farm and Mackenzie turned up and uh, he says to Johnny, what have you got in that bag, MacDonald? Two of your salmon, sir, he said. And he started laughing all about the Mackenzie. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Ah, he was some boy, but uh, he was very nice, the Colonel. I, I liked him because I used to go stalking with him, you know, and up from Achnadrish and sometimes Achnacraig and these places. And I used to go shooting with him out at snipe in the winter time sometimes too. Aye, he was some boy. Your family uh, were quite uh, uh, on the land. Was there? A, did they have a, a presence in the sea? Did they work on the sea as well? Were they? Well, not the Macleans. The the MacDougalls did. Right. My, my great grandfather Alexander MacDougall. They weren't from Hown. Ah, right. Okay. And they they came from Ireland about. Oh, oh, that'd be lovely, thank you, yes, that'd be great, thank you very much. Alright, I was going to leave you to do it, I'll do it. Tea or coffee? Uh, a wee coffee would be lovely, thank you very much. Milk? Uh, just, just black, thank you. That's very kind. Black? Just black, thank you. Um, aye, so the family have come from, the McDougall's come from Ireland? They came, well, I'll, I'll give you the bit that I like bit. He, he, he um, gave a lot of information to, you know, when they started with tape recorders first. And um, he's, I'll give you the thing there, it's very interesting to read it. Yeah. It's about how they, they were making the whiskey. Ah, where did they where did they do that? Oh, and the whiskey cave was one of their places. Okay. Oh, of course. Aye, but they came to Laganolva first of all, the breeze of Lagan they called it. 
I think I've heard his one. He's speaking in Gaelic as well. It would have been. Yeah. Yes, it's lovely. I've heard uh, that one. Yeah. No, he he. Uh, it, there was three brothers came first of all. So Alec Big said, and uh, they lived there, and I don't know what happened to two of them, where they went or what happened. But there was, uh, I mean, there was definitely connections with other McDougals over there, and I I've never found out. It's difficult to find these things as far yeah. as the... When the, the generations go. Aye. But anyway, once on my side, he was a, I think he was a John McDougall, and he married a Mary McLean over there. Mm-hmm. And through the, they, they were there for a few few years, I must have been. Then they moved, they were in Glach Gookery. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Thank you very much. Very much. Oh, no, that's just good. Right. Thank you. They were in Glach Gookery for a, a number of years. Not, not Krakig, but Glach no, Gookery. The, the lower one. The higher one, the one... Over the higher... The you, crack is the one nearest the shore, you know, the one with the, okay. the gable end in the house. Right. I've always got to take it. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Very much appreciated. Oh, if you want to join us here, more than welcome. <laughs> thank you. That's, oh, she's that's that's good. Yeah. Uh, and then they, they moved to Hound, and they were there for a, a long time, but they were making whiskey. See, the whiskey cave is just straight down below there. But they were making a lot of whiskey up in uh, in uh, Lagan as well, up around that area. But the customs were always chasing them. Of course, know? yeah. So it was a bit of a problem. But they, when it, my father was saying, when he was a boy, he was over in uh, Howe, you know, with the old man. But he he was getting quite old at that time, and the, they were walk, used to walk up to that whiskey cave, and he was saying there were still barrels at the back of that, you know, the casks. Really? And at the back of that cave, aye. See, the way it was made, there's a wee stream comes down there, but the stream, if you, if you ever go down there and look at it, you'll see across the top of the cave, mm-hmm. it's built with stone. Mm-hmm. Now, that was built so that the water came down, mm-hmm. and it was level, and it flowed over level and blocked the smoke getting out of the, the key. That's very cunning. Because the the customs guys when they went yeah. round the sea would see it, you know. But they were doing it, he was, he was doing it, uh, well there was one of them there, he was a real, the, the last one was Alan McDougall, he was a real guy for the for the drink, you know, for producing the whiskey. There's a place between Treshnish and um, Town, mm-hmm. just above the road, there's a wee burn comes down there. Mm-hmm. Just above the road, there's a ruin. It's can you can I think you can still see it. I haven't been over there for a long time, but that was Bruce Allen. They called that. Oh, right. Aye, and he used to brew in there, and he had a place at Threshnish Point. Mm-hmm. If you're ever down there, back from the cliff a wee bit before you go up the hill there, mm-hmm. Sleov they call that mm-hmm. area there. But anyway. He was brewing in there too. There, there was a, a thing built like the this in the whiskey cave. The worm and yeah, the, you know, the, the stone, the stone right, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the family, um, the, the, your your grandfather was at, at sea. Is that right? The the McDougall. My great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. Aye. So what was it that led you first to go to sea yourself? Oh, I always had... Uh, th- that We spent that much time in the water. Mm-hmm. 
when we were young, when the smiddy, you know, the, the, the burn was the place you lived in, in the old summer long after salmon and sea trout and anything else you could get or down the loch with a spear after the flounders, you know. Oh, of course, yeah, the that, And then my granduncle, Alec Van McDougall, uh, he lived in the, the shore cottage, you know, at Queenish there, and we were always out with him, you know, in the, at the lobsters and that sort of thing. And my uncle Charlie, uh, well, my father's uncle Charlie, granduncle, uh, on the McLean side, he was a great man for going out in the boat and would be in the loch fishing cuddies and stuff down at the Narrows there, just on the inside of the Narrows. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you would venture out as far as Gervor and a good day and a Saturday, but it was all rowing and things, you know, so that got me kind of... I was always interested in fishing, you know, that was... It was a bit of a challenge, you know, and I think... Totally, yeah. I, I think that was what got me started in it. But when I left the school in 1954, you couldn't get a job fishing for loving of money because there wasn't any fishing going on. Really? Apart, mm-hmm. Gosh. See, my granduncle by that time, like man, they, he, he was past it, you know, he, he's, he had stopped fishing full time. But my uncle Peter, uh, he had he had got the, the fishing down at the uh, Queenish there, at the, the, the Murachnach. Mm-hmm. That's just off a lure, between luring and Lothmingdry. This is Ed, I've heard a lot. Ed, yes, yeah, yeah. that's the very man. And, um, I, I, well, first of all, there was no, no fishing going on, so I thought, well, there was no alternative but the farming sort of thing. Okay. So I went to Turklach and was only there for a couple of years. And then Peter, I got a job with Peter then. He got the fishing in, in Glengorham as well. Right. So I was fishing with Peter for oh, two or three years, I think it was. And what were you catching? Salmon. But when we started there, it was only a small 16-foot coal we had. And we were fishing. There was people, Yules, they were East Coast folk, and they were there in Mingarid pre-war, you know, and they worked out of uh, Loch Mingary. There's a port on the Queenie side there. They'd built a, a nice jetty there, you know, just with stone, but a lot of it was down, so we had to rebuild it. But uh, we fished three nets. We had one in the Murakhach, one at Glengorham, east of the point, and then there was one further up, what we used to call a castle net. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the first year we were there, well, the first year I was there, it was, you know, it was quite good. It was, a, it was quite good, the fishing almost down there. But we started in the, the fishing started on the 16th of February, and it ran through to the 26th of August in these days, you know. But we used to start about the first week in March, mm-hmm. and it could be very, very cold, you know. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and the idea of that was to get the spring run of salmon. You get the big mm-hmm. salmon in there, and it would be into me a good bit before you would see the girls, you know, the smaller fish appearing. But uh, we had some very good fishings. But the trouble was, at that, at we, at we, the first year I was there, we had no bothies, so we had to stay up in Mingary House. Oh, right, okay. The house, there was one room that hadn't been uh, sort of knocked out, so we used to stay in there. But you had to carry the fish from the shore to Mingary House on a hand barrow. Oh, jinks. It was some weight. Aye. No, I always blamed that for me never growing very tall. <laughs> weighing you down. Yeah. But we used to, we used to have to do that every day. Uh-huh. And then the second winter, 
you know, the first winter after we were finished, we managed to make improve. There was a track down there, but we improved it, and then you could get the van down to the oh, top of the hill. Yeah, would you go down? Aye, you know, but you still had to carry the salmon up there. But it was, it was hard going, you know. So the, I think it was the, the second year, we had a big fishing one day. We had, well, we were reckoning. We never counted them, but we had about forty-eight boxes of salmon. Goodness me. Well, we reckoning there must be upwards of 400 fish. That's incredible. No, oh, some I've never seen a fish like that in my life. Considering the, the the scarcity that goes up the river nowadays. Oh, I bet it's, it's these were different times. Aye. But that we went out and we fished that Murakhan first of all, and by the way, there was some dozer of fish in it, and she was only 16 foot, and it was getting a bit dangerous so we had to come in we dumped that fish up in the green covered them up went down to the Glengorham net and there was even more in it oh we're getting a bit worried about whether we would make it back but we did and we put that ashore then we went back to the castle net which was further east and there, there wasn't as much in that one but maybe as much as there had been in the Murachnach so took that back got it back to to the green the, where the, the bothy was <laughs> <laughs> then how do we get from there to there was the problem so Aye. we decided I would go to Mingary Peter would start boxing the fish and I would go to Mingary he'd go to uh, Queenish mm -hmm. see if I could borrow the tractor mm -hmm. and trailer so I went up there and Uncle Huey was there so I got the, the tractor yeah. drove to Dervig collected all the boxes I could find you know because it was, we, always had, <laughs> we always had a store so back to Mingary, we finished uh, boxing the fish and got them on the trailer and there was some load on it. Took it to Dervig. Well, I don't know, we were reckoning there would be between two and two and a half tonne of fish in that, that thing. It was some people still. Got it to Dervig and Donnie Mackay had a wee lorry at that time, so we, we took it to, in a year to the pier, mm -hmm. go in the Loch Anwar, oh, yeah. and then away to Oban, onto the train, and it would be down in Glasgow in the afternoon, and that was the, in the market there, you Gosh. know. But it was some, it was some experience. <laughs> I'm sure. Nah, but I mean, it was nothing to get a hundred fish in a day, nothing at all, you know, be a lot more than that some days, yeah. but that was the biggest day I ever seen, you know. <laughs> that was quite, quite oh. miserable. So the next year, well, at the end of that year, Peter ordered a, a new cobble from Weatherhead in uh, Cockenzie in Fife, mm -hmm. and we got that the following spring. She was 24 feet, one inboard, Peter's engine. It was great, you know, mm -hmm. quite a difference. Did that allow you to go further out as well? No, no, we didn't go anywhere out. We, we, you were fixed to the area you had, right. and these nets were set nets. They yeah. were, there was anchors, and you just changed the net once a week. Okay. You know, put a new head and a new... Uh, and was it done uh, by licensing? Were you licensed Oh, yes, by, yes. Right? It's a, well, the, the Murachnach one was owned by the Queenish Estate. Yes. And they could, you know, with their permission, you could fish as long as you wanted. But the other one, uh, it was a crown fishing. Right. Now, that crown fishing only lasted for nine years. You only got a lease for nine years. Okay. And then you had to bid again. Right, okay. So someone could else, else could oh, bid in Oh, absolutely, you. and it happened all the time. Or over you, yeah. Yeah, they could, they could. But it was it was quite amazing, you know, the fish, it was about these. But then 
it didn't matter where you went. If you were the most the arse burn up there any day at the show field beyond them, the tide was in it, we just fish everywhere. Yes. It's the same in Loch Coon, Loch Mingri, mm -hmm. that place you're living there. Mm -hmm. Used to net that that place. But there was there was one place in that um Narrows that was good. It's called the Port. Oh I don't I don't I, I know the geography but I don't know the name. Ah, yes, Where's the port? The port? It's it's about halfway up. And the, there's, there's a kind of a point comes out, and there's a deep hole in there, a deep pool. Fish used to come up, and they would lie in that before the actual tide started running back into the law, okay. you know. That was the pot. Good for otters down there. Oh, aye, aye. We see otters there a lot. Yeah. And, uh, we used to trap the otter at one time. Did you? Father. Belt or? Oh, yes. Oh. Aye, aye. Aye, my father was always at that, you know. There, there above the bridge, we always had uh, traps in there in the winter time, and uh, used to skin the otter. And the old door up was in the smiddy between the smiddy and the shed at the back. It was just you would nail them on there, the whole stretch of out, you know. Well, in these days, it was a great sense of uh, source of, of uh, money. Yeah, of course. Because if you got a really good skin, you would get four or five pounds for it. Now, a man's wage in these days was maybe not a lot more than that. Yeah, so it right. was valuable, you know, if you got... And where would they be sent to? Would they be sent to... Oh, we used to send them to a firm down in uh, England. Right. Yeah, they, they used to buy them. They were very, very keen on these things. But they had to be good. If they were short or that, you wouldn't get nearly so much. But so you trapped them and you got the, the good ones. It's like the mink as well. Um, Georgia, uh, my wife had caught mink. We trapped mink. Um, you know, we have traps for mink so that they uh -huh. didn't take the chicken. Unfortunately, all of our chickens have been taken by otters. Oh, I know the otters. Catherine. Same as Catherine's, aye. Yeah, oh, it's blooming annoying. Uh -huh. But... Um, we we used to have it with um, the 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 mink and Georgia thought well it's a terrible waste of life you know mm -hmm. just trapping these so she started to skin them and mm -hmm. and got some skins and was noticing the pattern was very different like there's only there's only a very specific window where you get a decent pelt out of them the only the only way the only time of year you should ever take any pelt is in the winter right it doesn't matter whether it's a a mole or a or, or a rabbit or anything else. The winter's the time because yeah. the coats set at that time of year, right. and you know the hairs don't come out of it. But I tell you the story about Alec Ban. You know he was always shooting things too, and he was never very particular about what kind of shot he used. He used to get cartridges, and he would take the lead out. You know if it was a number six or yeah. something, it was too light, and uh, he would get a big sheet of lead, and he'd be cutting chunks off it. You know. Oh, yeah. Stemming her up, and then they would put candle grease in the end of the cartridge. Wow! And that held it together. Right, okay, binding it. Yeah. So it appeared in the smithy one day with this big otter, big dog otter, and the old man was delighted. You know, oh, this is great. So we were out in the smithy, him and I skinning it, and <laughs> when he came to the back, it was just nothing but holes, square holes. This was the lead, the like man. <laughs> Said, yeah. <laughs> so it was oh, man. Aye, but there were fruits. He it's put not a nice end. <laughs> he put ball, ball bearings in another one. For God's sake, you can't rip he, things apart. He got out of a bicycle wheel somewhere, and then he poured the, the candle grease in it, and it let rip, and it came out. The barrel was square at the end. <laughs> 
Aye, so what was Alec Band's cottage like when it was um, when it was lifting? Because I've always looked at it from a distance and thought how beautiful it is. Oh, it was very nice over there. Aye, yeah. aye. He had he was married, Alec, and uh, he had one son, and uh, aye, they lived there nearly. His wife, she was diabetic, and uh, she died, you know, fairly young. It was a shame, you know, but. Alec used to walk up and they walked up and down, him and his brother John stayed there with him. And, you know, when they were at the fishing. Uh, these MacDougalls, you know, it's a sad state of affair. Now, there was my great-grandfather, uh, Colm Allister, they called him, and his brother, Charlie. Now, they each had, one had 11, I think the other one had 12, but there was one of them died. So they both ended up with 11 of a family, and of these two families, there is not one male today living. They've all, you know, a lot of these men didn't ever get married either, it was a shame. So you started off fishing with um, salmon netting. Salmon netting. And what, how, what did you move on to from that? Uh, well, Robin Cowe, you know, um, Michelle's father. Yes. Uh, his fa- well, his father, Alec, had the, the arms, and Robin was always keen on fishing too, you know. So he he got a boat from one of the Malig boats, it had a wee sp- it was Speedwell it was called. Mm-hmm. She wasn't very big, about 30 odd feet, 30, maybe 35 feet or something. Mm-hmm. So Robin was wish- fishing with that for a, maybe a year, and then he got the Valiant, another one. She was built by Charlie Henderson up there in Malig too. And she was carvel built, she was a wee bit bigger. And uh, he wanted me to go with him, you know, because, you know, I'd done a good bit at the creels with the other crowd. And I could make creels and put eyes in them and all this carry on. So I did that and I went with Robin. I was two or three years with Robin, you know, and he had that. And then he got... um, the other, another Malik boat from Malik Dunk, and the Speedwell too, we had that one as well. So I spent a while with Robin at that sort of thing, you know, because it was difficult getting the crews at any experience, you know, in these days, because there wasn't, for years, I think during the war years, pre-war there was always fishing went on, but I yeah. think after the war, well, during the war, you know, a lot of the guys went away and maybe never came back. So... I went, when I went with him, uh, the thing about it at that time, there was a big fleet of Malik boats, maybe seven of them come, used to come round about. But um, it, there was always laws, you know, like being local people, you, you, we used to fish right round Mull and Tracy's yeah. Islands, and out the Col and places like that. But uh, Arnamurahan too, that was another place. But the... You would always find lobsters, you know, oh, yeah. if you had any kind of sense. So I, I worked with Robin, then I went back, Peter wanted me to go back with him, so I went back with Peter, and uh, eventually, I think it was 1964, I had managed to save up as much money by that time as would buy my boat, because you couldn't Fantastic. get you couldn't get money uh, from anybody. No. Uh, Not even the bank? No, they wouldn't give you a dollar. You had no collateral, that was the problem. So just before I got that boat, maybe a year before that, there was a a Highland Fund, they called it at the time, and Mary Morrison, you know, his mother, she was very friendly, they were always very friendly with our family, so she said to me one time, 
I'll but try in this Highland Fund to see if there's money, you know. So she got in touch with them and we had a meeting with them up in the Western Isles there. Well, they listened to the whole story and, and uh, they turned around and said to me, well, you're from Mull? Yes, I said, born and bred. Well, had you come from somewhere else, you would have got money. We are trying to encourage oh. people to come to the island. God. That was what they said to us. Now, I remember Mary, horrible. Mary was spitting fire. She was just raging about it. But that's what they said to me. If I had come from somewhere else, or come maybe from the south or somewhere, I don't know, not one dollar would I get. Well, they're furious, all right. So it meant then you had to save up, you know, and do what you could. I used to do a bit of in the, in the winter sometimes when the, the salmon fishing stopped at the rabbits, I had Colochron and, oh, yeah. and uh, Glenaris and Cranny and made a lot of money at that. Really? Oh aye, that was, that was a good, that was a great thing. The meat and pelts? The, the, the meat and the pelts? Oh, you sold the rabbits just as they were, you got okay. rid of them and paired them up, put them in a bag and sent them off to Glasgow. Okay. But um, I would, I was it 25, 30 dozen snares? And you, you, you put them out on a Monday, uh, changed, uh, shifted half of them the, on, the, on the Tuesday and went on that up to the end of the week. Now, we were getting at that time, it was a good price for rabbits, £10 a bag, which consisted of about 24 or 25 pair of rabbits, 50 rabbits altogether. Now, if you could even get a bag, and sometimes you get two bags for a day if you were lucky. Goodness me. They were, you would get £10 a bag. Now, that was a fortune because it was more than a man's weight. You've seen the £8 a lot. So, with that and all the other, you know, when I was working at Salmon, I would only be just taking what I would be giving my mother at home and we left the rest and I got it in a lump sum. So, I saved all that money. And at the end of the day, it was up near £2,000 I had, which was a lot of money. That's impressive, yeah. And that was, the, that was how I managed to buy that first boat. I bought her, she was called the Manx Beauty. She was built in, uh, it must have been about 1934 or something like that. And she was uh, requisitioned by the Navy during the war, and there was a big gun in her forward, you know. So she was a, a what size was she? Uh, 48 feet. So we, I got that, it was in November, would that be 64, I think it was, and um, we took her home here, it was Christmas Eve, went down to Camelton, the, the, it was in Port of Ogie I bought her, but the, there was, some of the Irish boats were working in the Clyde, so mm-hmm. Donan got a couple of the boys to take her to Camelton, so we went down and picked her up, Mal- uh, Alistair, McLean, my cousin, Plough, they call him. Mm-hmm. He was he was with me at that time, and then John Wilkshire came with me. So we had a good crew, you know, but uh, well, it was tough going at the start. But uh, I had made my own creels, every one of them before that. I had, yes. But we only had about 200, that's all we worked in these days, you know. You would work what you could carry. Yes. That was it. But we got that boat then, took her home, and uh, we did a bit of trolling with her later on, and... In uh, 1971, as I was saying, I ordered that new Aquila, you know, from yes. Nobles. Aye. That was it. But oh, it was. But we used to fish all over with them, you know. But you only, all the boats were the same in these days. 
you didn't fish one area, you you kept moving around. Right, so there was no <clears throat> there was no specific territory that was yours. It no, was, right. no, you just went. I mean, we fished a lot in the Torrens and down to Isla and you know all over the Coal and. Heck and of a rough in the Torren rocks. Ah, it was all right. It was, yeah, I think you got used to it. But there was. <laughs> That's when I've been down there. It's like hard <laughs> oh, We used to stay in in the, the Tinker Hole there. You know, yeah. the the this before you come into the Tinker Hole, there's an arrow gap there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to call that, the Malig men called it the Dardanelles, you know. <laughs> oh and they used to anchor there and, and uh, just worked there all week. We stayed there all week, came home on a Friday, you know. Nobody worked the weekends in these days. Mm-hmm. That was very much frowned upon. So, talking of weekends, how did you come to, to meet your wife? And uh, how did you come to, to settle? And Well, she was... Um, I don't know, probably a, a dance or something. <laughs> I would think so, because uh, it was different these days. Dances were great social occasions, you know. Um, People, you know, we were talking about that not long ago, you know, the Games Week. Yes. There would be a dance every night of the week somewhere. Fantastic. You know, there would... Terloisk and Salon yes. and Mornish yeah. and different places, you know, and... You went to every one of them. By the end of the week, you were just completely shattered. So, which was the best hall? Eh, it wasn't so much the hall you were worried about. It was just the, the, the dance. The yeah, crap yeah, yeah. was good. You right, know, I've heard tale of being the uh, athletic hall being fantastic out over at Tallis. Oh, don't talk about that one. That was a Nissen hut. Ah. That's what that was, right. and they, they'd be dancing a, a Highlands Cottage in there, and you would see the walls going in and out. Oh, fantastic! Uh, there, oh, there was a good one there too. We used to, they used to have Kayleys, you yes, know. Yeah. Oh, it was a great thing to go to the Kayleys. So there was uh, a man, Donald McLean, Dolalan, they called him over there. He was he would be Christine McPhail's grandfather, I would think. Okay. Right. but anyway. He, he used to play the pipes, and there was a raised stage on it, you know, and the rafters were low and the thing, and he would start marching across here like this to the other end, and then he would start turning around, and the drones would whack off the thing, you know. <laughs> the squealing it used to go in. Oh, it was a great place. They had um, electric light, believe it or not. They had a uh, uh, turbine, I think. Uh, the, the big dam was outside the, the hall yonder. And uh, that was the, the the start of it, you know. But, and maybe, depending on how much water there was, they would start running out. Tilly lamps would have to come yeah. out then and get in. Yeah, uh, It was a great place, Terloisk. Terloisk was one of the favourites, I think, you know. And who um, as, who, were, who would provide the tunes at the time? Well, the people, obviously Bobby McLeod was around, but oh. who were the key, who would you, oh. if someone was playing... Bobby McLeod was the elite, really, you know, that you didn't... They liked a Johnny Farkas, and it was in Derby, Colin Morrison, his uh, father... Johnny Simpson on the fiddle, you know, all, and Kaya Farkasson, uh, she used to play the piano. Oh, the music in these days was totally different because the, what, it was all people that learned music by ear, you know, I was learning to play by ear, and it was a natural rhythm they had. Yeah. It wasn't this thing you've got today where every note's got to be perfect. 
It was a rhythm that counted. You can dance to their music, to the old, you know, the, the music right. the old ones had. But 90% of the ones that's there today, I don't know what you'll be doing. It's on jumping up and down, waving your arms kind of thing. Well, it was all set dances and waltzes and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But the dances were fantastic. They really were, you know. Oh, it was good, great stuff altogether. But the, it, I don't know. It's, it's a shame the way that's all gone, really. It's slowly coming back. I mean, we we have tunes at, uh, in the house, and we have tunes with friends and things quite regularly. But uh, and in fact, the Bella Croix are doing are yeah. doing good things these days. They've had yeah. Hector McFadden across yeah. just this weekend, yeah. and you rarely find a better box player. He's well, just he's, he's like what Fergie McDonald was, and a lot of these boys when they started off, they were, that they were natural. It was the natural sound they were producing. But nowadays, it's very artificial. A lot of that music, you know, it's not the same. Have you come across Gordon Duncan at all, the piper? The, he's no longer with us, but he wrote some fantastic tunes. I've heard his tunes. Uh, the, the, the famous Baravan and things yeah. like that. He just, there's something about his music that really just yeah. is I'll tell you what alive. The, I'll tell you what they used to say, the old folks, that there's no lift in his music. Ooh. that's interesting. Well, that was the old saying, there was no lift in his music. Mm-hmm. And that was because it was flat. See, the lift was because that was the proper rhythm for dancing. You know, you could, yeah. These people, you know, they played the music the way you sang the song. Yes, yeah. You know, that was the lilt that was in it. Yeah, totally. You know. You went with that with the body. Yeah, yeah. But Ian's father, Colin, God knows how many dances he was playing at. You know, and they were all... It was great. Was he on the box? Yes, aye. But, you know, the old button box. And there was another fellow, Johnny Russell. He used to play as well. He was from Salon. Oh, there was various ones, you know. And, and there used to be a man, Conley. Uh, he, he used to come to... And uh, I think he was a woodcutter originally. I think he'd probably been working here, I can't remember. But I remember he used to have a white shirt on. And I always remember when morning one night, and it was in the summertime, and it was warm, hot. And the man was just drenched in his way. That would be me, yeah. Uh, yeah. I must admit, of local players, my, one of my favourites is uh, Anne MacDonald, Johnny Simpson's granddaughter. Yes, Anne has right. just got the most beautiful tone of the fiddle, and it's so it's this, it's it's part of her. But you get that from her father, type of mu- types of music. You know, I mean, they weren't no perfect by any manner of means, any of these people, but their music had the lift. That was the difference. It was good music to dance to, compared with. Today's music, you know, I mean, the music is probably not perfect, but it's it's a different That's thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's different altogether. Oh, these were a bit oh, I think that's where that's where all the the winching went on in these days was <laughs> at the dance. Yeah, <laughs> that stuff. That's you know. a good a good term. Aye. <laughs> If it's okay to go back to um, the fishing, so you start, you've got, you've gone uh, lobsters and tra- trawling for uh, salmon, and, and the, the, we're at the the lobsters and the trawl as well, and then when we got the aquila, it was when I built the boat, it was ring nets, 
you know, at that time. By the time the boat was built, they had gone over for herring. It was trawling mainly, you know. So I didn't get a, a ringlet. I changed it for trawls. It's at this point that Alistair brings in some photos and over the next couple of moments we talk uh, through the photos and, and look, uh, look at them. The uh, photo of the Aquila was taken by Bill Clegg as well, uh, who'd been a local doctor here and very much missed character. He was a really fine gentleman. And uh, you can find the, the photos we talk about in Alistair's webpage uh, for the podcast on www.whatwedointhewinter.com. Okay, back to the podcast. Bill Clegg took that photo from just above the lighthouse there. We're coming into, mm. into Tubbermory. Beautiful. And there's the... That was taking fish aboard in Loch Nakeel. That's ours from beside you. Goodness me. That was an eight, a bag full of uh, sprats. Gosh. Oh, and that was for the going out to the Klondikers? Aye. Well, yeah. we did that too, but the, we would be so who, who have you got in the photo here? Who's Who are all the boys? <sighs> <laughs> That, that was myself. Mm-hmm. Napoleon there. I was just going to say, yeah, I've been drinking brandy with that. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what that's what old Pittman used to call me. Napoleon. I used to drink brandy. <laughs> <laughs> that was Charlie McDonald. Mm-hmm. I think that was Colin. That's Alan Mackenzie. Mm-hmm. That's Wee Oh gosh. Uh, that was my brother Tommy. Mm-hmm. That was Marky, the famous Marky Dan. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, one of them must be John Wiltshire. And probably Neil McLean, the other one. So you've got about nine, ten guys there on. Aye, but the... that was the crew of both boats. Ah, right, OK. See, when, when you were pair trawling... Oh, you pair trawled, aye, right. Aye, see, that, that must have been the first year we had the boat. There was no um, power block. Right. We got a power block the next year. Mm-hmm. That was the first year we had it. But that was it. So you lifted it aboard with this and dropped it. There was pond boards in the deck and holes and chutes. And you shot them into the lockers down the hole, you know. That's the Manx Beauty there. Oh, she's lovely. Gosh, she must have powered through the waves. Ah, she was a beautiful... She was a, well, she's still going. Is she? Where is she now? Still in, the, in, in England, she is. Mm-hmm. I sold her to Padstow. Mm-hmm. But that was her, CN233. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the Marina... Mm-hmm. That was one that Cameron, you know, Cameron mm-hmm. Winker father had, mm-hmm. and that was the Beulah that Robin Cowell had. Mm. That was what, that what do you think is it that, that makes um, Loch Nakeel and all that the, the place to be for prawns? What, what is it about? Oh, there's a lot to do with, it, with, with the water too, and, and what, you know, you get, um, there's a lot of burns come into these lochs, and for some reason, I don't know, you seem, everything seems to thrive. It's not pure salt water, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is mostly, but there are, there's, there's always that sort of thing in it. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear of Pluto? Yeah, I've heard the name Pluto. No, I don't there's a famous Pluto. Right. That was him again. <laughs> what, what, what was Pluto known for? I know, I've oh, heard the name of it, certainly. Pluto was a, a, a marvellous creator. He, he, was in, he was in the war. Mm-hmm. He, he, he signed up, I think he was only, maybe, I don't know if he was even 17, and, oh, he was in the Navy. He travelled all over the world, that man. He was, he was, uh, he would turn up anywhere, he would sleep on a doorstep if he had to, you know, they were, they were one of the, um, the McCallisters, you know. They oh, were, yes, they were, yeah, they the were, traveller folk. Aye. Yeah. But he was some boy, 
he would survive anything. He did too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was your favourite thing to fish? What was the most rewarding in terms of well, oh, personally? The, the lobster, I think. I would stay at the lobster. That was a that was a colour when she was new, mm-hmm. brand new, just mm-hmm. appearing at the pier there. And what what was it about fishing lobsters that was so rewarding? Was it just the the the, the, the gamble of it? It's like any job, you know. If you if you're doing something, you you get you're interested in you get you get better at it, you know. Yeah. The fishing, you know, there's there's I was all it didn't matter any aspect of fishing. I like the the pier trolling for the the herring and the sprats too, you know. It was. Uh, it's a bit of a challenge, all that. You know, you've got to, you you've got to remember when you leave here on a Monday morning that you've got to make wages for five men. Yes. And that's the big difference. Yeah. And I mean, you get seamen, people that you know work on ferries or or cargo ships or any of these things. They're getting paid whether they whatever they're doing. Whether but they if you're a fisherman, you're a fisherman. You've got to go out there and get it. And if you don't, you don't get paid. That's just the basic thing. But how, how was it with them? Um, <clears throat> the, the dynamic of of, <clears throat> of the men in the boat together. How was that? Was were there any particular crews that you remember with with great fondness as one? Oh, hi, all these boys that were there in that at that time. That Marky Dan, that Mark McAllister, he was a, he was just something else. You know that man, the wit. That that man had, you just wouldn't believe. You know, they were all like that. These people. Are there any stories particularly associated with Marky Dan? I mean, I've heard one or two, but that that, that stand out from the test of time. Oh, there's there's endless amounts of stories that Marky had. Well, one of the ones I remember a lot. He was his uncle, his uh, uncle, and his grandfather were in Benesen, and he was working with us at the time. And I, uh, we're at the pier troll at the time with, at the Sprats, and we're going to go into Benesen. You see, I think Ian had gone to land. He had we were just enough to fill one boat, so we went in, going into Benesen. Oh, he says I'll need to go up and see my grandfather. He's dying. Mm. Oh yes, and I didn't know that. Oh, I said. He's not well at all. Well, I said, look, we're going out at four o'clock and you better go up there and... If you're going up there, you better be back for four because that'll be it. If you don't turn up, we're off. So anyway, four o'clock came, no sign of Marky Dan. So I sent... I said, John Wilkes, you're needling up to look for him. But anyway, oh, they eventually got him. But it was by this time it would be after five o'clock, you know. So anyway... And he was, he, he, I was in the wheelhouse and I seen them coming down the pier and he just jumped onto the boat and down the foot like a shot out of sight, you see. <laughs> so anyway, we went round, it was, it was a night one moon, there wasn't much doing, so anyway, it must have been a Friday night, so we decided to come home, so we, we came home here and through, through the middle of the night and the Loch Buoy, Loch Nail, no, the Loch Nail was tied up on the mooring, so we, we didn't go to the pier, we just tied up on each side of this boat and... You know, on one side and we were on the other. And Marky Dan popped his head up and he was, must have been feeling really rough, you know. <laughs> and I said to him, where were you when we were supposed to be leaving at four o'clock? Well, he started giving me cheek then. He can bug it off, he says. I'm not coming back in your boat, I'm off. Jumped on the loch buoy, loch nail rather, went to the other side, 
No peer. Oh, gee. He thought, he thought <laughs> we were tight. <laughs> I had to So he was peeking round the wheels at me for a while, you know. He, he had Your to mouse. wait. <laughs> <laughs> he had to wait. Oh, he was... He was but, oh, there's, there's hundreds of stories if I could remember them all. One of the ones I heard, which I... I, I, I it was about um, trawling off of call and catching the cable. Mm. What, what, I, I, you didn't mention that. Didn't oh, he was on the village bell then, and we were for Paul Gallagher, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody says to him, and they're talking about boats, you see, that's not much of a boat you've got there, Marky Dan, no much power in that thing. Power, he said. Caught the cable going to call, and we were pulling the cooter out of the gable ends of the houses and tyrees. <laughs> That was Marky Dan. Yeah. Oh, that was, he was a real character, you know. There's a lot of good stories in, about him down to Benes and, and his, his uncle, Peter John, and that. Peter John and the Campbell had a... Oh, yes, yeah. Had a mini, mini, not a mini, but... I, I, oh, it might have been a mini. It was a small car, anyway. When the rally started, and uh, and I was getting ready, you know, as everybody did in these days, they just did the thing themselves. And... Uh, he must have been up in the pub or something, and and they were asking Andy how the car was going, and Andy said it was fine, but we need to get somebody to tune the engine. And Peter John pipes up, I would tune it for you, Andy, he says, but I'll be responsible for no deaths. <laughs> and other words, it was going to go that quick. Oh, gosh. And in the village, uh, when you were growing up in Dervig, who... who who were the characters then? Who who stood out from from there? Oh, there was there was a lot of old people in Derby in these days because yeah. after the war, uh, you know, even during the war, most of the guys were away, you know, and there was there was a lot. Oh, there was Lord knows, I mean, there was a, well the Johnsons. They were more of the travelling people. They were related to Marky Dan too, and they were up in Temple Cottage, you know, just at the top of the street there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we used to spend a lot of time up there with them. They were great characters, you know. They would—they always had whippets, fast dogs, and they would be away poaching a rabbit here and there. And they used to wear long army great coats. Mm-hmm. They would hang them on the, the rabbit's yes, belt, you know. You would see. <laughs> oh, hi, there was oh, there was like Johnny Farkerson and. Who, who was the Bongan? I've heard of oh, the Bongan referred no, to. The Bongan was something else. He was a different character. They could, it was him. There was Hugh McNeil. Hugh McNeil was the postman. He was from Mulva Ferry. Mm-hmm. And there was the Bongan and there was Mr. Alastair MacDonald. Now, he was in Dramard. He, his sister was married to Roderick MacLean that used to have Gomadra. Oh, ah, right, yes, yeah, yeah. And yep. then they had Trachlan. Yeah, yeah. And they ended up I don't know was it when Roderick died, but they were they were up in Dramar there, Dramar yeah. at that time. And they used to sit in the cows there, as they called it, you know. Out, the post office then was where the McDonald's were, you know, it's in the middle of it. It's opposite Craigan where yes, I was born. Right. Yeah. And they were sitting there waiting for the, the meal to come in maybe at six o'clock probably by that time. And they, they would be starting telling two stories and oh dear me. You've never heard stories in your whole life. Like they were, they were on about bulls one night, and uh, oh, it must have been Mister Alastair. I said, "If we got no bulls in Mullet, half as big as the bulls we had out in U.S. He was from U.S. You see, huge. They said the bulls that we've got out there. 
And uh, he came up little poke down. Oh, he said, we had a bull when we come. And uh, Alva there, he said, he was massive. He was really big. He was a huge. He couldn't keep him in a field or fence or anything. He was just going through the lot. And, uh, of course, the bong got smoking away at the pipe beyond them. Somebody says to him, do you ever any big bulls? And he, was, he was at the farming too, you know, he worked on farming. Oh, well, he said, yes, we had a bull down in, in, in uh, the Ross when I was working down there, he said. And was he big, Neil? Oh, yeah, he was big, he said. We couldn't get him into the buyer in the winter. Oh, yeah, he must have been. What did you do with him? Ah, well, we just thatched him outside, he said. <laughs> oh, he had some good stories. Neely, his son, he used the forestry, Neely. He used to run the mill too. He had the, the mill master there. And when he was in the forest, he was a gamekeeper there, I think, latterly. They used to be sitting in the, they had a dormobile at that time, you know, each of the teams, and they'd be sitting in there half the day if it was raining or anything. And yes. They were doing. Um, I spy with my little eye, you see. Uh-huh. So they were all having a shot at it. It came to the bone guns down. And Neely says, What do you what are you say, Neely? What do you see? Oh, I see SF, he said. Oh, yes. Anyway, they're all going through everything they could see in the whole van. No, not, a, not one of them. Couldn't make head nor tail it. So that went on till they were going home at night. Now they said, Look, Neely, you need to tell us what this SF. Sir, Miss Flask, he says. <laughs> That's brilliant. Sir, Miss Flask. Uh, he used to have another one too. They were talking about the roads, you know, in Mull, yes. and talking about the Greenman Rocks. Oh, oh yeah. he said, a relation of mine that was working on that. He said, it made that road, actually. Oh, and who was he? He was my father's sister's brother, he said, his uncle. <laughs> Some confusion, I'm telling you. Oh, there was endless amounts of stories of these people. Mm-hmm. But oh, that, when that uh, meal was coming in at that time of night, and everybody would be gathered at that cow's or yonder, and they'd be sitting there. Like, and that was the talk that was going on, you know. Great, great stories altogether. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a pity folk didn't have tape recorders in these days to record oh, some of it, you know. Yeah. They were brilliant. That Mr. Allister had some good stories too. Uh, he used to put his hand on top of your head. Now I'll tell you what you had for your breakfast, boy, you would say. And say, well, what was it? Porridge. No, it would be porridge anyway. Because yeah, that's what you had. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there was something else. But oh, there was oh, endless amounts of stories. I need to sit down and remember some of them right enough. But, oh, no, Derwick, you know, Derwick was a great place in these days. But it was all... There was a lot of McLean's in Derwick. You know, really and truly, I, I mean, there wasn't very many other names there. You know, it was nearly all McLean. And, and the surrounding area, there was Farkasons and, you know, uh-huh. one or two like that. But no, it, it was it was mostly McLean. It just, it's amazing how fast that these people, you know, the, the whole lot of these families have disappeared, you know? I think in Derwick today, well, that's what... There's Archie in McLean up at Harperfield there. Mm-hmm. There's Neil. Woolley. 
and Neil and this Smitty, old Carthan down there now. And I, I didn't think of many more than that there that I can think of that, that was there when we, you know, when we were young, mm. you know. It was a great place to Herwig in these days. So. See, there was no electricity, no running water, nothing. It was it was just totally different, you know. We used to go Cayley into the houses, you know. Uh, grand uncles and grand aunties, they were up there. The, the cottages that were there were Willie Macron's days today, Aye. you know. Yep. Uh, Johnny Gowan, that was my grand uncle's day. And his sister and... His, uh, his niece was staying there, you know, and his brother Charlie too. Tell us like a drama, you know, and yeah. he'd be in the Bullhorn and he'd come over. Oh, he was very little drink, but, you know. I think you know during the war there was that the rationing. You know, you can't you can't think of that, no. but rationing started in nineteen forty. Now I was born in nineteen thirty nine. Now from nineteen forty to nineteen fifty four, when I left the school. That's the year the rationing stopped. Now you couldn't get clothing, you couldn't get Shooting anything, things, aye. fruits, aye. anything, sweeties. We used to get half a dozen wee caramels for paper, and that that was for the, for, the, for a Saturday or a Sunday morning. You used to get it, you know. Oh my! But it was it was it was just a different world, really. But and you used to go up the street night, and you'd smell the peat smoke. You know, from the fires, right? See, when we were at the Herring, and he used to be up the Lochs and Lewis and Harris there mm. and down the U.S. And he went there in a frosty, calm night, you know, and the smoke from these houses would be drifting out over the loch, you know. Oh, man, it was something else, that. You know, if it was a bit of a moon, it was just Aye. beautiful, you know. Magical. Yeah. Aye, it was nice, that sort of thing. Aye. Thank you again for talking to me, Alistair. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you also to Anne for your hospitality and also to Kathleen, Alistair and Anne's daughter, for getting things rolling. Alistair passed me a text from his family that came from a transcript of an interview with the School of Scottish Studies. And I'd like to read it to you now, as I mentioned in the podcast. So this is uh, from uh, the School of Scottish Studies. And it's from Alec McDougall, Alec Brecht, uh, the age of 85, from Treshnish and Mull, recorded by Alan Bruford on the 6th of July 1967. Mr McDougall estimated that his ancestors first came to Mull about 200 years before. The first paragraph therefore probably refers to the end of the 18th century, the second to the beginning of the 19th. My great-grandfather and his two brothers, it was from Ireland that they first came here, up to Laganulva, and they made whisky there. They had a good lot of whisky, and they couldn't get it sold at all here. They had to go to Ireland. They left Lagan yonder at nightfall, and they went out through the sound of Iona until they were out of sight from everywhere before day broke. Then they got to Belfast. They sold the whisky. They got a shilling a bottle for it. Then they would get flour and stuff like that too. Anyway, they were back in Laganulva on the morning of the third day, three of them, with a rowing boat. Then they came to Treshnish, and the sons started making whisky. My grandfather and his brother. They were working at it for a long while and they couldn't get it sold. There was a man in call, he was buying it, whatever way he managed to get it away to Ireland. They had a lot of whisky this day, and information had been laid that they had it, but they picked a wild day to go to call with it, because that way there was less likely to be a boat or anything around to see them. 
what should have happened, but when they were halfway out to call, she came in sight round Kayach Point. The revenue cutter was after them. They fired a shot from the cutter to see if she would stop. They couldn't turn back, the sea was so rough, so what they did was let her run for Tyree to get clear of the trouble. They got to Tyree, they ran around to Ragyaw there, and the Tyree people came down to them, masses of them. They realised at once what was happening. They picked up the whiskey and went off with it and hid it somewhere. Then another squad came and lifted the boat out of the water and put her up behind the other boats. The cutter arrived anyway and sent a boat ashore. They ransacked the whole place, but they didn't find the whiskey. They found the boat, still wet, up behind the other boats. They took the boat with them to Campbellton anyway. But I don't believe they ever laid hands on the whiskey. So there you go. That's quite something. I'd just like to mention our sponsor again for this episode, who are www.mullselfcatering.co.uk. The view from Thornley Bank is the quintessential view over Tobermory and onto Calve, looking out to Drimnon and beyond. And you could spend just hours staring out of the window there. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm also looking to fundraise through donations. So, if you feel like it, and are able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee, or even a sausage roll, whatever you may be, through the website. You'll see a Donate tab there, where you can donate if you so wished. But don't worry if you can't or don't want to. I'd much rather you listened than didn't. And on that note, thank you very much to Wendy for your donation. I greatly appreciate it. Many thanks. As ever, the webpage, www.whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need for this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Although I'm not really sure what I'm doing with Instagram yet. Please excuse me if my presence there is a bit vague. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Morning thang. Shinu! And as a wee treat for staying all the way to the end of the podcast, here's the sound of one of the deer rutting behind our house last week.